The August primary election was wrapped in intrigue. There was wild spending by PACs in the Republican U.S. Senate primary. Democrats nominated women to all five federal offices up for grabs. Conservative Republicans may have tipped the policy scale with wins in contested primaries. To dive into the results, we invited a cast of political observers to the Kansas Reflector podcast. With us by video conference call were Bob Beatty of Washburn University, Patrick Miller of the University of Kansas, and Michael Smith of Emporia State University. I'm Tim Carpenter, your host. Welcome to you all. All right, so let's dive into the Republican primary for U.S. Senate. It came down to U.S. Representative Roger Marshall, former Secretary of State Chris Kobach, and a plumber turned politician Bob Hamilton. Marshall won by 50,000 votes to earn the right to take on Democratic nominee Barbara Bollier. Bob Beatty, how did Marshall do it? Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting because the Republican Party wanted the uh, candidates to be thinned out because they thought that uh, Chris Kobach would win in a crowded primary. And it's very possible that uh, the third candidate, um, Hamilton, might have hurt Kobach because Hamilton uh, went farther to the right of Chris Kobach uh, than anyone probably would have imagined. He sort of out-trumped Kobach, which some would have thought would be hard to do. So, you know, we're not going to know because we're not going to invest the money or time, to be honest, and, and talk to the primary voters. But... I would I would argue that Hamilton offered a, a, an alternative for Kobach voters that weren't really inclined to, to vote for for Roger Marshall, and uh, that 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 might have been one of the reasons it wasn't as close as some people thought it would be. Okay, Patrick Miller, you know the there was a huge investment on behalf on Marshall's behalf to try to convince people that Kobach was unelectable. Um, what, do you think that played well? And, 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 you know, can you just speak to the outside money that came into this campaign? Sure. Um, and I would say one of the disappointing things about the race is that we really had no public polling for the last, what, five or six weeks. So we have no data on what Republicans thought about Chris Kobach's electability. We have no data on who the second choice of Bob Hamilton voters were. Um, so there's a lot of speculation here, but I think one certainty we can say is that Republicans in DC, the establishment, if you will, Mitch McConnell world, was very concerned about how Chris Kobach would fare statewide as a candidate, given that he had already lost once. Um, and so there, there was a lot of super PAC money. Uh, in fact, not just on behalf of Marshall, on behalf of Kobach as well. It's interesting how relatively little money that Marshall and Kobach raised as candidates and how dependent they were on super PACs uh, to really do the advertising for them, which is something that is increasingly common in general elections, but not in primary elections. So that's a little weird for Kansas this year. Mm-hmm. Michael Smith, do you find anything else interesting about this Senate race from, from your vantage point? I do. I find it interesting that Marshall won Johnson County, and I think that was really the key. Uh, Johnson County, of course, the mo- most population, most voters in the state. Uh, Marshall represents the big first in rural central and western Kansas. Um, it's in the Wichita media market, so he has some name recognition in Wichita. 
none in Johnson County going in. And then you have the COVID limitations. You're not going to be, well, unless you're Trump, you're not going to be having big crowded campaign rallies and so forth. So that's a limiting factor. He did get his yard signs out, but those don't usually win elections. So I was really impressed that Marshall was able to win Johnson County. That was an uphill battle for him. I'm sure a lot of it had to do with the saturation of the airways by independent groups and Marshall Marshall's own campaign, but that was really the key for him. Patrick Miller, Trump did not endorse in this race. There were a bunch of endorsements that went Marshall's way, I think. So, Patrick, do do you think, was that much of a factor in this? Again, it's very difficult to say. You know, interestingly, if I take you back to 2018, when everyone thought that it was Trump's endorsement that helped Kobach. You know, Kobach's polling in that race had always shown him leading Governor Collier by 10 points. So if you believe Kobach's polling from two years ago, then Trump's endorsement cost him a 10-point lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I just, I don't think that there's a lot of evidence if you look at Trump's endorsement across states, across time, that it necessarily is decisive in a clear way that moves a lot of voters, maybe at the margins here and there, but most of his endorsements go to Republicans who are generally the front runners and they're gonna win anyway. Uh, You know, might it have helped Kobach with some votes here or there, possibly, but given the margin that he lost by, I don't think it's necessarily something that would have substantially changed the math. Uh, All right. Tim, Tim, can I add something? Yes, sir, go right ahead. To, to Patrick's point about the, the political action committees, uh, this is a, re- a remarkable statistic. So about, about we're talking a lot of money here, but about uh, $16 million was spent in this Senate race, uh, $12 million by uh, political action committees and $4 million by the candidates, give or take. Kobach only spent, two, and we're talking about broadcast ads, Kobach only spent $250,000 out of that $16 million on his own TV ads. Now, Patrick's right, there was $6 million in ads attacking Marshall or being pro-Kobach. But what that tells me is that Kobach never really ran his own race. In fact, $5 million of that was actually a Democratic political action committee. So I think uh, Kobach, in a weird way, was never really in this race in the sense that he had very few ads by himself defining or trying to define himself. And he sort of gave in to that idea, maybe correctly, that he was already defined, but he did nothing to change the dynamic of the race uh, in terms of his own ads and presenting himself in a way that might get some voters to, to stick with him. Does anybody want to take a bite out a uh, new polling that suggests that uh, the Barbara Boyer versus Roger Marshall race is, is uh, basically a statistical tie. I know it's early, but does anybody have any thoughts about that? He, yeah, so, you know, we have, we have four polls so far that test Barbara Boyer against Roger Marshall. Three of those polls show that it, it is a one or two point race, no clear leader if you, if you factor in the margin of error. Marshall's own poll showed him up 11 points, I think, something like that. Um, so, you know, I mean, polls are going to differ here and there, and it may be that the difference between Marshall's poll versus the other poll is some of the mechanics of polling, like weighting and assumptions about turnout, we don't need to get in here. 
But I think, you know, we have several polls now that show that at least as of today among voters who are decided, it is a relatively close race. Most of those undecideds probably are going to lean Republican. In fact, if we look at that newest poll that come out, that came out, those undecideds in the Senate race prefer Trump in the presidential race by about a two to one margin. Uh, so what I'll be interested in to see going forward is whether Barbara Bollier can really develop a message, if one can even exist, that gets those soft Republicans who are going to vote Trump just because it's their party, but they're not like the MAGA hat wearing type of, of Republicans. Can she develop a message to get that kind of Trump voter to also vote for her? Hmm. Yeah, it'll be very interesting. It, it'll be an expensive race and interesting. So let's shift to the congressional seats and we'll go start with the first district, the rural first district. Uh, former Lieutenant Governor Tracy Mann dropped a county commissioner, Bill Clifford. Uh, Bob Beatty, what do you think about that? Uh, that, you know, in, in some ways that fit into this narrative of the voters, at least in this primary, not wanting to go with the quote unquote outsider or the quote unquote more exciting candidate. Uh, no offense to Tracy Mann, but Bill Clifford had, had the cowboy mustache. He was a former F-15 fighter pilot. He was a doctor. He was actually a pretty exciting candidate. Uh, Tracy Mann, again, not come across as this really exciting uh, person and he you know he prevails man prevails he gets the endorsements he he was part of the quote establishment with with uh, Brownback and Collier and so again the safe choice it looks like from uh, voters Michael Smith this, this is the first district is a GOP stronghold the Republicans have held it for decades the Democratic nominee is uh, an educator named Callie Barrett and uh, what does she have to do to win um, uh, um, perform miracles. Um, <laughs> I'm in the first district right now. Emporia is actually the very mm -hmm. eastern edge, and that goes all the way to Colorado, um, not including Wichita. It is so heavily Republican. Um, they have had, they usually do get the Democrats somebody to run in that race. Um, and, and realistically, the best thing they can do is encourage Democrats to get out and vote. You know, there are counties in Western Kansas that Hillary Clinton lost by more than nine to one. Um, and my own analysis of states that went heavily for Trump, like Iowa, are that it was the collapse of the Democratic minority in Republican voting areas that caused that to happen. The cities hmm. didn't shift. So you bring that over to say like a Barbara Boulier um, or possibly um, uh, Mayor De La Isla, their best shot is to get voters in Republican areas uh, not to give up the Democrats to come out and vote anyway. Um, and so it's really, it's, it's a get out the vote job. It's kind of like being a precinct committee woman. Um, her chances of, of being elected to Congress barring a huge scandal are minimal. Okay, Patrick Miller, let's shift over to the crazy second district race. That's where incumbent Representative Steve Watkins was defeated by the state treasurer, Jake LaTurner. He will take on Democrat Michelle Della Isla, the Topeka's mayor. So, Patrick, uh, it, it's hard to know where Watkins' problems begin and end, but can you analyze his loss? Yeah, uh, wow. Um, you know, I am hard-pressed, and I don't mean this to be a mean thing, I'm really hard pressed to think of a member of Congress who has done more to inflict unnecessary political damage on themselves than Mr. Watkins. Um, I mean, let's just be blunt. He was 
dishonest about a number of things when he first ran for Congress in 2018. His business record, his voting record, possibly his sporting record, was he actually a Republican, and so on and so forth. I don't think that anyone is particularly surprised that he got himself a primary challenge, a serious primary challenger this year, even before the entire scandal about did he commit voter fraud or not, and, or lie, and lie about it, even before that came out. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I would say this is also a race where we never had any polling in it whatsoever. No one outside the campaigns can tell you if from day one, Mr. Watkins' defeat was set in or whether that's something that the voter fraud scandal may have possibly caused. Uh, but I don't think it's a particularly surprising outcome, just given mm -hmm. everything he'd done to himself in the last two years. Michael Smith, uh as Patrick just mentioned, a couple weeks before the primary election, the Shawnee County District Attorney charged the congressman with three felonies. Michael, do you, do you think anybody who's charged with felony crimes like this has any prospect of, of prevailing in an election? I just think it's the, the death knell. Apparently it was, and Watkins, as Patrick pointed out, already had problems before that, mm -hmm. um, listing his home address as the UPS store and so on and so forth. I think what Watkins went for, and he was pretty direct about this, is, is a sort of Trump effect. You know, we know that the Trump base, that whenever Trump is attacked, even if the attacks are valid, it makes them like him more. You know, these people don't want America to be great again. They're trying to hold us back. So double down in your support for Trump. And I think what Watkins was hoping is that would rub off on him. It didn't. Yeah, I saw, uh, I reread a comment that Watkins gave before the primary election. He said he was going to let voters decide whether they thought the charges against him were legitimate. I guess we now have that answer. Bob Beatty, there was a third candidate in this race, Dennis Taylor, who ran exclusively on COVID economic uh, revitalization. He got 17% of the vote. If, if Jake LaTurner had wanted to try to uh, do something very clever to win this election, it might have been to pay Dennis Taylor to get in this race and steal 17% of the vote and make it impossible for the congressman to win. That's, that's a big conspiracy theory, I know. But what do you think about Taylor's candidacy? Well, it, it was uh, it was shocking because he actually talked about an issue, and I did you know I did an analysis of all seventy eight candidate ads, and only uh, fourteen percent actually mentioned uh, coronavirus. Uh, so, and he was he was a if he hadn't talked about it, then hardly anybody would have. But you know, I, I've I've come to the I've come to the idea that if Taylor hadn't have been the rate in the race, I think Laturner. Uh, would have won in a landslide. I, I've come okay. to decide that. And and one of the th crazy things about this race, as I moderated the only TV debate, and the charges were dropped about 30 minutes before the debate. And uh, we, I, we believe there was a fair number of people in the district watching because it ran on three different channels in the second district. And that was, you know, if, he, if, if Watkins wasn't in trouble <laughs> before that day, uh, I think he was done by the end of that night. And a little bit like Kobach, I, I watched Watkins' ads, I watched his campaign, and there was a sense that, in a bizarre way, I almost wondered, does, how much does he want to win? It, it was a campaign, that, and Michael's right, it was based almost entirely on, hey, uh, Trump said a good thing about me at the rally two years ago. I mean, that ad just ran over and over. 
it was an odd campaign all the way around, like both Michael and Patrick have said. Michael Smith, we're going to jump to the third district Republican primary, which was won by Amanda Atkins. She was a uh, ran the Republican Party in Kansas and was a brownback campaign manager a long time ago. She got 31 percent of the vote. There were four candidates in this race that at least got 19 percent of the vote. Is she set up very well to take on Congressman woman Sharice Davids? I don't think she is. And the biggest problem is the trending within the district. Um, it was a Hillary Clinton district. It was close, but it was a Hillary Clinton district in 2016. That's what sent the feelers out that this was a serious race that culminated in Sharice David's victory two years later. Um, and I think the tea leaves are saying that this is not a toss up race. This is a favored David's race. Mm -hmm both because Davids is a good candidate who works the district very hard and has raised a lot of money, had no primary opponent, Democrats in Kansas usually don't, um, but also just the trending in the district. You know, I remember just in the early 2000s, I was studying Johnson County, they only had one dem Democrat in their entire state house delegation. These days, de Johnson County overall is purple and parts of it are solid blue. Patrick Miller, could you talk about whether or not Sharice Davids and and um, um, the Democratic Senate nominee uh, will, will actually help each other? Barbara Boyer, will they help each other in this race? Uh, well, I think they could help each other to the extent that the third district is a must win for Democrats. Um, if, if Barbara Boyer is going to win statewide, it's probably going to be winning the third in a landslide, possibly winning the second. Uh, you know, Pat Roberts actually lost the third in his Senate reelection six years ago. Um, so there are a lot of Democratic, Democratic votes there that need to be turned out, that the coordination of those uh, campaigns in that area could, could benefit e each other. Um, you know, I do agree with Michael that it's, it's a district that Sharice Davids is favored to win. National Republicans, if you look at their super PAC, uh, ad reservations have shown no interest in buying in the Kansas City market. It does not appear to be a targeted race by national Republicans who are playing an exclusively defensive strategy practically in suburbs this year in seats they already hold. Um, so I think Democrats are going to have to possibly self-motivate more than they might normally would if Republicans are not targeting it to really double down on campaigning hard and getting turnout in the district. All right, I should mention that uh, U.S. Representative Bob Estes, uh, he won his, he is going to be the Republican nominee in the fourth district, and he'll run against Democrat Laura Lombard. I, I presume that's an uphill battle for the Democrat. Let's shift over to the presidential race, and, I, and uh, Joe Biden selected uh, Senator Harris to be his running mate. Patrick, why don't you uh, kick this off and, and tell me what you think? Um, I mean, I wasn't particularly surprised. I think she was seen as one of the leading contenders. I think she had a number of strengths that complemented Biden. And in fact, something that I think is actually a strength is that she did go after him so hard in the primary, mm -hmm. uh, in those debates, and that yet they can come together in this moment of unity, which Democrats still need to, uh, you know, to build that. Um, so I, I think she was a strong choice. Um, I think she was an obvious choice as well. Uh, so Michael Smith, do you think having Trump at the top of the ballot, um, you know, and running in this presidential race will excite Democrats or moderate Republicans to go vote? That is a great question. Um, 
Yeah, that is a great question. I mean, here in the Kansas primaries, we saw candidates like Kobach, who has views, especially about immigration and voting, very similar to Trump's, and he uh, didn't do well. So the question is, why do Kansas Republicans stay so loyal to Trump? Um, Trump, Trump, you know, I remember back in the day, we used to call Ronald Reagan the Teflon president. Uh, and at least among Republicans, there's, there's something about Trump that, that the liabilities of a Kobach or a Watkins, at least in Kansas, are not percolating to Trump. Um, Patrick's absolutely right. Trump has a base, MAGA hats and all that kind of stuff and social media presence. Um, but they're not all of Trump's voters. They're these soft Trump voters. Um, you would think that, that uh, an established, relatively moderate Democrat like Joe Biden might win some of them, but we're not seeing that in the polling data. On your question about energizing Democrats, absolutely in the third district, the Kansas City area with Sharice Davids and Barbara Boulier, yes, they're energized. Um, I think Michelle De La Issa will be effective in Topeka and Lawrence. Don't know about the rural part of that district for energizing Democrats. Um, as far as Wichita and Western Kansas, we'll see. Okay. Well, Bob, in, in 10 words or less, do you think the President of the United States is going to so muddle the Postal, Ser postal Service thing that it's going to deter people from advanced mail-in voting? Well, uh, <laughs> no, uh, the first part is yes, it looks like that's going to be a tactic. The second part is that so far in this election that seems to be rising the determination of people that are mm. fed up with a lot of these things. Could be, uh, yeah. It may actually increase uh, voting, um, which would, we're, seeing, we're seeing possibly a trend of people just getting fed up with a lot of things. We'll know on election day, but there are a number of polls, even one out today that 538 ranks with an A plus, a plus that shows a 13-point lead by Biden and now Harris at the moment. Okay. Patrick Miller in the State House, uh, half a dozen Republican incumbent senators lost in the primary. And I, I think some people viewed them as moderates, but I felt like some of them were conservatives. But we'll just say it's the more moderate wing of the Senate Republican uh, group. What do we think about that? Do we think that's uh, uh, going to hold up in November? And do we think what do we think about that in terms of policy, Medicaid expansion? Sure. Well, I mean, most of those districts um, are safe Republican in November. A couple of those districts, particularly in Johnson County, Republicans might actually be at a disadvantage because of the conservatives who won there against Democrats. Um, but certainly we're going to see a rightward shift in the Republican caucus. The exact math is unsure. Democrats um, are gunning to pick up some seats, mostly against conservatives. But I think definitely we'll probably see more conservative leadership that maybe fights with the governor more, sends her bills that they know she's going to veto, uh, might see more conservative policy from the legislature on taxes, education funding, Medicaid expansion may be dead because mm -hmm. of leadership control. We'll see less of an issue on, of a difference probably on issues like abortion, gay rights, and guns where moderates and conservatives really vote alike already. Okay. So, um, Hmm. There, were a, there were a couple of House conservative Republicans that lost as well. Bob, do you think the balance of power is going to be more or less the same in the legislature uh, overall? You know, I, I just don't know how this is, these shifts are going to turn out in November. Uh, I'm going to defer to Patrick on that because while I was obsessed with uh, the Senate TV ads, he was uh, diving deep into these legislative races. Patrick, just to add to your answer, do you think the numerical balance of power will be roughly the same? In the, in the legislature? 
I think it's very hard to say, but I think we could well see that Democrats increase their representation in the legislature because of suburbs, but yet the legislature gets more conservative because the Republicans are more conservative, electing more conservative leadership. And that leadership really has strong control over the agenda. Uh, So that could be an interesting dynamic. I want to thank our guests, Bob Beatty of Washburn University, Patrick Miller of the University of Kansas, and Michael Smith of Emporia State University. I'm Tim Carpenter. Thanks for listening.